0: Hello, and welcome back to Professor Kozlowski's aimless ranting about Assassin's Creed. So, last time I mentioned that I was eager to replay Assassin's Creed 3, despite being rather disappointed by it both the first time and the second time that I've played it. Um, And we kind of ended on the note that things were messy in that game, Uh, that it was not really a good game much at all, and that it clearly had a lot of different sort of diverse priorities that were frequently conflicting with each other. And this is something that we've been talking about quite a bit in this lecture series for the last several episodes. Um, I identified the same problem in Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, and to a lesser extent in Assassin's Creed Revelations. Um, But here in Assassin's Creed 3, it very much kind of coalesced. It very much became apparent that there was a apparent conflict between the sort of corporate objectives of the assassin's creed franchise i.e what ubisoft wants out of this franchise namely a yearly franchise that constantly brings in more money that like serves as the flagship for the you know ubisoft studio um that is you know Constantly showing the player new things and bringing them back into the game with features and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, But at the same time, a sort of artistic integrity that underlies a lot of these games. An effort to investigate that consistent theme of freedom and order, um, as well as sort of exploring the historical periods and representing them both accurately and fairly... Um, this was something that Assassin's Creed 3 especially struggled to reconcile. Um, all of the fancy new features and even the promotional material seemed to be at odds with the artistic objectives of kind of revealing and laying bare the ugliness of the colonial situation and, and demythologizing the American Revolution especially. Um, so we had all of these gameplay segments that were very much lionizing the colonists and celebrating the American Revolution, while there were all of these very important story beats that were showing how actually George Washington was a jerk, and actually, you know, all of the white dudes really were kind of just colonial imperialist dirtbags, absolutely taking advantage of black slaves and the native population, and so on and so forth. Um... And that puts us in a kind of weird position here for Assassin's Creed 4. Like, back in 2013, when the the game actually came out, I gave it a pass. Um, I had been thoroughly frustrated by Assassin's Creed 3, I did not want to make the same mistake again, so even when Ubisoft started hyping this game and talking about piracy, I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this again, I'm not going to fork over 60 bucks so you can once again just sort of, you know, disappoint and frustrate me. Once again, we are in a time period that I wasn't terribly connected to, that I wasn't terribly excited about, the game didn't look the way that I wanted an Assassin's Creed game to look. And so I waited for like five, six months until finally the price came down and then I bought it and it very quickly became my favorite game in the franchise. Um, And this is not abnormal. Like, for most players of Assassin's Creed, this is the best Assassin's Creed game. Um, It's weird. It's complicated. It's certainly unlike any of the other Assassin's Creed games that have been released so far. It was very much a left turn from the gameplay that we had come to expect from this franchise. Um, but at the same time, there's so much about this game that is so well executed and so well done. And where Assassin's Creed 3 aspired to a certain sort of thematic unity and resonance, Assassin's Creed 4 very much achieved the same thing. Um, and there's a lot that I want to talk about in this game. Um, like, when I, again, set out to do my big lecture series on Assassin's Creed, I was looking forward to replaying Assassin's Creed 2, and I was looking forward to trying out Assassin's Creed 3 again, see if I had misjudged it. But I was very much looking forward to replaying Assassin's Creed 4. Um, I knew that would stand up to scrutiny. I was looking forward to giving it more attention, to being able to tease out more of its themes. Because as far as any of the games so far have gone, This is certainly the richest thematically, at the very least since the first one, if not the richest thematically Assassin's Creed game altogether. Um, So let's dispense with the introduction and the pleasantries. Let's just jump right into it here. Um, Let's talk about the pitch. What did Ubisoft sell this game as? And this one is kind of super obvious. Um, It was sold start to finish as a pirate game. Um, like, there had been that mixed critical reception of Assassin's Creed 3. Ubisoft knew that it was kind of struggling here because AC3 was supposed to be the big new entry in the franchise, the one that reinvigorated the franchise after all of those Assassin's Creed 2 sequels that people were, you know, getting pretty tired of. And at the end of the day, it did not achieve that goal. AC3 was lackluster at best. A lot of people kind of weren't impressed with it. To this day, it's kind of a weird, you know, redheaded stepchild of the franchise. So, the Assassin's Creed 4, on the one hand, is using the same engine as Assassin's Creed 3. It is very much like a sort of spiritual successor slash spinoff slash whatever um, from Assassin's Creed 3 in the same way that, like, Brotherhood Revelations were for Assassin's Creed 2. Um, But at the same time, Ubisoft couldn't let that be what this game's appeared to be. Like, it couldn't be just Assassin's Creed 3 Part 2. Um, because that meant, you know, they were going back to their old formula. It meant that they were going back to, you know, the Brotherhood Revelations lackluster, you know, expansion sequel kind of situation. No, they had had to emphasize right from the ground up this is a radically new game with radically new mechanics, with a radically different story that is not just continuing the old mistakes of the past. So, right from the beginning, we are told this is going to be about pirates. Now, in Assassin's Creed 3, we have a lot of pirate stuff going on. Like, there's a number of different naval missions, which are honestly some of the best parts of the entire game. Um, there's the whole thing where you're following around Captain Kidd to find where all of his, like, buried treasure and stuff. Where you find out that he's actually, like, got this weird precursor artifact that, like, deflects bullets, which is really cool. Um but you spend a time a lot of time like breaking the the blockade of the british ships against the americans or hunting down your you know pirate like renegade rival thing um, there's a lot of that ship stuff going on in assassin's creed 3 and honestly on some level i have to think that assassin's creed 4 was in the planning stages well before assassin's creed 3 was released Um, There's just too much in common. There are too many good ideas there that have been fleshed out way better than the ones that were developed in Assassin's Creed 3. Like, it's shocking to think that this was a game that was composed start to finish in roughly a year. If anything, I tend to think that Assassin's Creed 3 bears way more marks of haste and, you know, being unfinished than AC4 does. But that brings us to the next thing that AC4 is definitely doing. It is fixing. Assassin's Creed 3. Make no mistake about it, all, a lot of the decisions that influence the gameplay especially are clearly motivated by an effort to fix what was disliked and broken about Assassin's Creed 3. So what was the most annoying thing about the naval battles in Assassin's Creed 3? Well, probably the whole, you know, you're in the pitched fight with a bunch of other ships, and all of a sudden you sail against the wind and you come to a dead stop and it's miserable. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. The wind is much less of an issue here in Assassin's Creed 4. Likewise all those awful menus that you had to navigate in Assassin's Creed 3, like the fact that the entire game would stop still for you to load a menu screen, like in the middle of combat if you're switching weapons or something, gone. Not a thing anymore. The menu is much overhauled. The number of weapons that you have access to are considerably more limited, but weirdly enough, considerably more powerful. Um, which means you're not going to stop and load every five seconds. All of the weapons for the, the ship, especially, are automated, so you, it depends on where you're firing, where does your you know, actual camera look when you are getting ready to shoot. So you don't have to keep switching from chain shot to heated shot to regular shot or whatever. Um, it's all just at the touch of a button super simplified super streamlined the game is much faster paced as a consequence and does not have any of the menu navigation crap that you had to deal with in assassin's creed 3 likewise all of the the sort of notoriety stuff is also gone um which is kind of a big deal here much as it is you know not actually something that's going to change assassin's creed 4 all that much for reasons we'll talk about um We are fixing the notoriety system by eliminating it almost altogether. There is a notoriety system for when you are in your ship, but there isn't when you are on the ground. Um, So like, there is the, okay, you're in danger because you're in a dangerous area stuff, or you have been, you know, caught and therefore people are chasing you, but that's the only sort of three states that you exist in. You are either anonymous, i.e. walking through the streets and nobody cares, you are being chased actively because you are, like, at that high notoriety, you know, you've, you've killed someone or attacked someone and now the guards are after you, or you're in the, like, super dangerous place because there's a red circle over the map and, you know, they're Watching it and guarding it. That's it. Um, no more of this. You know, you've got to, like, levels of notoriety and you've got to pull down the, the wanted posters or, or bribe the heralds in order to get, you know, less less notorious. All that is gone. Um, Again, simplification is one of the major things that is very evident here. And it is pitched, especially by Ubisoft, as fixes. Like, even on the back of the box, you've got enhanced, improved, it's all there. Um, So, Assassin's Creed 3, we recognize there were a lot of problems with it. We are fixing these things here in Assassin's Creed 4, largely by streamlining and simplifying. I should probably mention that this is the end of the console generation. Like, one of the problems that you suspect Assassin's Creed 3 is facing is it is pushing the limits of the hardware a little bit too far. The PlayStation 3 especially is not okay with, you know, loading these menus really quickly. It's probably part of the reason why I was so grumpy about them where Xbox or... well, not Wii users. Xbox users probably didn't have the same issues. Um, but here we are streamlining. It's got to be very simple, very straightforward. If we're going to be having these massive maps and this gorgeous, you know, environment and you know these complex interactions between the NPCs and the enemies and stuff, that we've got to like totally strip a lot of the UI problems that were bogging down the hardware. PlayStation 4 and Xbox, whatever the new one is, are coming out on the horizon in literally a year or two. We know we're pushing the limit. We know we're pushing the envelope. We're going to have to scale back, which is fine. And it works here. Um, that's the other thing that we're doing like as much as it is streamlined as much as it is a new you know interface and a new set of gameplay mechanics that we're using here at the end of the day what ubisoft is going to sell this game on is not it's got the best graphics in the world or the best gameplay in the world at the end of the day they're selling it on hey guys it's pirates like, it's pirates, it's ships, we're going to give you this massive open world where you can sail around to all these interesting locations, we're going to have big pitched naval battles, or you're going to like jump on board enemy ships and fight there, like, that's the selling point here. That's what Ubisoft is banking on, that's what we're going for. Um, and I should stress, this is huge. Like, radically different from past Assassin's Creed entries, um, so far in the Assassin's Creed franchise, there is no such thing as an overworld. Um, we have had hub worlds, or something approximating hub worlds in the past, like in an Assassin's Creed 1 where you're wandering around the, quote, kingdom, or in Assassin's Creed 3 where you're wandering around the frontier, as much as these are big open world areas, they are sort of separate from the, the little like city locations, like the frontier is, you know, linking Boston and New York and the homestead, but it doesn't actually incorporate them. Um, in Assassin's Creed one, the kingdom is literally just a series of like quasi linear paths that link the, the three big cities that you're going to interact with to the Assassin's Creed headquarters. Um, like, we have yet to see a real deal huge overworld map on the level of what we're seeing here. Um, Like, there's nothing comparing to it. Um, And I should emphasize, there are in fact cities in Assassin's Creed 4, but one, they're pretty small compared to the cities we've seen before, like nothing on the order of Venice or or Florence in Assassin's Creed 2, um, not even something on the order of like a Damascus or an Acre in, in Assassin's Creed 1. Um, these are small, fairly compact cities, largely because that would be historically accurate. Um, the major cities of the Caribbean are, again, Kingston and Port Royal and um nassau kind of to some degree um havana like these are fairly small cities nothing on the order of the old renaissance cities nothing on the order even of the big sprawling metropolises of you know colonial america like it's a banana republic and it knows it um and that two is a big move away from assassin's creed's origins we don't have the huge towers or the crowded city streets with the narrow alleys like yeah havana is fairly crowded and fairly sprawling but at the end of the day none of the buildings are going to exceed like two stories at the most like there are a couple of churches a couple of major administrative buildings but that's it and none of these are huge landmarks on the order of you know Like, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood has the Colosseum, or Assassin's Creed um, Revelations has the Hagia Sophia. Like, Assassin's Creed 3 very much did away with a lot of the major landmarks as well. Like, again, smaller cities, smaller colonial towns, none of the big skyscrapers that we would expect from New York today are there. But here it's even more pronounced. Like, Assassin's Creed has moved away from the AC1 and AC2 formulas. We no longer have the big, fancy landmarks from a world that has existed for, like, hundreds, if not thousands of years at this point. These are new places. Colonies. Places that have only started being cities. Um, On the one hand, I should stress there are ruins here in Assassin's Creed. Black Flag. Um, You are going to spend some time bumping around the Mayan ruins especially that are apparently dotting the Caribbean islands. Don't ask questions. The historical accuracy here might be fairly charitable. Um, But at the very least, it's not the same city that has been here for you know 2,000 years like Rome or Florence or Venice was. Um, once again, we are in colonial territory, newly emerged towns that are like operating it as administrative centers, largely on as representatives of bigger foreign empires far, far away from here. Um, now. All of that, this is what I mean by the newness of it. Here we are emphasizing not the Assassin's Creed cities where you would conduct assassinations or sneak around between buildings or engage in this complicated crowd, social behavior stuff, although that is present. No, the focus here is you're going to spend most of your time sailing on the open world, getting into ship battles, boarding other ships, and doing the sort of things that pirates do. Um, So let's shift our focus. Since the main part of the pitch here is the gameplay is radically different, we have a whole new world for you to explore, everything is new, nothing of the old Assassin's Creed franchise or none of the things that you would expect from it are really huge or an important part of it, let's talk about what it actually feels like to play it. How does this gameplay work out? Um, And again, I gotta stress, you're gonna spend 90% of the time... Fighting on ships, or sailing on ships, or hanging out on ships, or, you know, stealthily sneaking around some ships with other ships, or exploring with ships. Like, all of the stuff that made Assassin's Creed distinct gameplay-wise in the past is largely eliminated here. Like, yes, you are going to still have the navigating through the crowds, following your targets, you know, assassinating them dramatically or whatever, but this is kind of in the minority as far as this game is concerned. Um, most of the time you're going to spend sailing around on your ship, the Jackdaw, and getting into scrapes or deciding to pick a fight or you know, f- trying to find wherever your next like place to go is. Um, you can ignore a lot of it with the fast travel system if that's what you want to do, but clearly more of the game's effort and more work has gone into put making these ship battles engaging and entertaining and making that a huge priority for this game. Um, Maybe it's just me and my love of exploration, or maybe it's the fact that I really do enjoy the ship combat in here, but if I'm spending, you know, 50 hours on this game, I imagine that 40 of them will be spent on the ship. Um, and I don't think that's an accident. I think that's what the de- devs want you to do here. Um, so instead of the usual mechanics, instead of the usual gameplay loop of like preparing your assassination or, you know, finding a way to your target and then committing the assassination and then running away or fighting or whatever, we have to talk about a completely new gameplay loop here. Um, Again, that's all there. You'll commit your fair share of assassinations in Havana and elsewhere, but largely that's not how this game is going to go. There are a number of assassination missions that do occur in the cities, but honestly, they are dwarfed by the ones that occur in specifically generated island locations where you're stealthily creeping through the jungle and hopping through trees and doing stuff like that rather than jumping off of buildings or you know blending into the crowd or hiding in a you know canopy balcony or whatever. Um, even the assassination missions are going to look different. But the ship gameplay is where most of the focus is, so that's where we're going to have to talk about the most. Um, And again, the main focus here is you're going to spend a lot of time, first off, just sailing. Just going from point A to point B. Traveling across this enormous open-world map that has been devised here. Um, And this open-world map is, again, 90% just ocean. Like there are a lot of islands There are a lot of big islands like Cuba is in fact represented kind of bisecting the map in half where the Northern part of Cuba or the the seas to the North of Cuba are like less hostile than the seas to the South of Cuba, giving you a sort of like gameplay progression here, a kind of difficulty curve as well as reserving all of the really big ships with all the really cool rewards for the Southern part where later, where you'll find them later in the game. Um, but you're going to spend a lot of time just going from point A to point B. And importantly, a lot of that going from point A to point B, it's up to you what you do along the way. Um, now, I should stress, there is a kind of obvious reference point to huge open-world gameplay with a lot of sailing that allows you to you know engage with it as you see fit at this point, and that is very much Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. Um, like other pirate games definitely exist. Assassin's Creed 4 does not exist in a vacuum. Like it's almost kind of its own subgenre at this point. Um, but it is a kind of empty subgenre. There aren't a whole lot of games that have distinguished themselves as being the best pirate game in the franchise. And honestly, Assassin's Creed 4 ends up kind of being the gold standard for pirate games for many years to come. Like, even nowadays, when you talk about, you know, new fancy pirate games like Sea of Thieves, you're kind of going to inevitably end up comparing them to Assassin's Creed 4, since Assassin's Creed 4 did so much so well. Um... So Assassin's Creed 4 very much is kind of pioneering this gameplay as much as it is borrowing a lot from the Zelda Wind Waker textbook. Namely, you're going to wander around and you're going to go from place to place via this ship, so the actual gameplay here has to be entertaining in its own right. Um, But also, you need to be able to be more capable in combat and more historically accurate than Zelda Wind Waker was. Um, Like, you you aren't a cartoon here. This is supposed to be historically real. Um, So as a consequence, your jackdaw is equipped with a variety of weapons, but a variety of weapons that are, in fact, historically accurate. So you've got your chain shot, which you can fire from the bow of your ship, like directly at oncoming ships or ships that you're approaching, uh, rapidly, but it doesn't have the same effect that it used to where it would take out the mast. Um, you can no longer use this as an effective way to incapacitate other ships. No, it just does damage, which is kind of a bummer, um, and is, you know, again, part of that streamlining this process means a lot of the strategic elements of the gameplay have gone out the window um, in favor of making the strategy the way that you actually use the the few tools at your disposal rather than um, you know the way that you, like, can like use certain tools at certain times or things like that um so you're going to sail around um and then when you in fact decide to pick a fight and most of the time you will be picking those fights there are certain areas where you're not allowed to be and the ships will in fact like track you down and fight you upon sight but most of the time you're sailing the open seas you're going to bump into the occasional spanish trip trading ship or the occasional frigate or brig and they're going to leave you alone As long as you leave them alone. So one of the tools that you will definitely have in your arsenal is your spyglass. Um, You'll be popping this out fairly frequently to to look at the various ships that you've encountered and ask yourself the question, do I want to fight them? Um, And the reason you're asking yourself this question is because most of the cool stuff you're getting in this game, you're going to get through ship battles. You are a pirate, after all. Your main source of income is, shocker, privacy. So you're going to sail around in your fancy ship. You're going to scope out these other ships, and when you scope them out, you're going to automatically be shown what are they carrying. And there are a number of resources that that includes. There's obviously the in-game currency, the reals, um, but also you're going to have rum and sugar, the main things that you know these sorts of ships would be transporting to and from the Caribbean, which you can then sell to any you know local like shop in order to get more money. Uh, But you're also going to get the four big strategic resources, wood, cloth, um, metal, and I forget there is definitely another one though, unless I'm totally mistaken and have been, you know, blowing it off. Um, These are the resources that you're going to be using to upgrade your ship. Get yourself fancy new cannons, get yourself a stronger hull, be able to carry more fancy shot like the heated shot or the the fire barrels or the mortar shot. Um, This is how you're going to upgrade so you can get those fancy weapons or maybe include more harpoons. We'll talk about that later. All of these things are going to require these strategic resources. And while cloth and wood are pretty easy to get a hold of, metal's pretty tricky. So, honestly, a lot of the time you're going to be looking around at these ships saying, okay, this one only has rum and sugar, not interested, I have plenty of money at the moment, or alternatively, this one is carrying a huge reals payout, but it is guarded by a couple of other ships, like there are specifically trading convoys that float around the Caribbean that are sort of just inviting you to pick a fight with them, so you have to fight a number of different ships but there's a pretty good payout as far as the money is concerned or you're going to have to be looking for those big nasty ships with all the metal so you can do the big time upgrades towards the end and as a consequence there's there's an interesting natural difficulty progression going on here where when you start out you're going to be avoiding the big scary frigates and brigs because you probably can't fight them ship to ship, but you'll be looking for opportunities to prey on weak trading vessels that have you know, rum and sugar so you can sell it, make a profit, and upgrade your ship um then towards the middle of the game you will have a ship that's a little bit more scary and as a consequence you'll be looking for frigates that are all isolated from their friends or you'll be looking to capitalize on a situation where uh, spanish and british ships are already fighting one another so you can swoop in take metal upgrade your ship even more and then finally you're going to be picking fights with the big scary man of wars and actual like convoys of ships um, where you can get tons of money and tons of medals. So you can get those final big deal upgrades that'll really make you competitive. so you can fight the big end game legendary ships that are hiding in the corners of the map. Um, but that makes means that you're intru- you're doing this interesting gameplay progression here, where you are sailing around um, based on the strength of your ship, looking for fights that you can win you are thinking like a pirate in short the gameplay is encouraging you to think like a pirate Not, you know, I can go into battle with any number of ships at any time, although by the end of the game you'll probably be able to do that, but I want to prey on these opportunities. I am looking actively for situations where I can turn turn the battle to my advantage or where I can prey on weak ships that are unprotected or unguarded, um, or I can take a bigger ship by surprise and totally incapacitate them and then weed out, you know, the ships that it's protecting. That's what your main sort of gameplay thought is going to be. Um, How do I take advantage of the situation? How do I get the jump on these other ships? Um, And the way that they spawn is mostly random, but also a little bit more strategic than just purely random. Like uh, when you are in the the southern part of the region, the, the more difficult area especially, you'll find ships like spawning in together in groups um so it'll not just be you know like a couple of lonely trading schooners that you can totally just take easily and get all their swag and use it to your advantage but instead it'll be you know a couple of trading schooners and a brig protected by a frigate so this is a real fight that you're going to have to engage in or you're going to find like a man of war spawning very close to you know a frigate and a couple of trading ships um You're going to have to, again, use the situation to your advantage, play to your advantage at every time, and effectively just be a jerk more often than not, you're going to have to exploit cheap opportunities, either opportunities in the the mechanics of the game, which may or may not reflect actual historical realities, or mechanics, or you'll have to exploit the situations that arise just because of the randomness that this game engenders. There were more than a few times where I got into a fight that I probably couldn't have won and swung it to my advantage by taking cheap shots, by incapacitating the strongest ship in the fleet with a barrage of, you know, unprovoked, like cannon fire um, in order to just get the one strong ship out of the way so I could prey on the weak ones. Or alternatively, I would like take out a weak ship really quickly and then sail in such a way that I was protected by it because the other ship wouldn't be able to fire on me without hitting its ally. Um, this is something that you're going to be doing a lot in here. You're going to think like a jerk. Think like a pirate. Think like you are trying to turn the situation to your advantage no matter how cheap or poor poorly devised that may that may be you're not going to play fair in short and that's a good thing that's what the game wants you to do and that's what you're supposed to be doing based on the context here pirates don't play fair and as a pirate you are not going to play fair but in addition to the actual ship battles the main thing you're going to want to do is board the ships that you take out Um, In order to get all of their cool resources, you kind of have one of two options. You can either sink the ship with your cannons, which is typically way easier, uh, but will only yield half of the resources that that ship carries. Most of the rest of it is going to go to the bottom of the ocean. Um, Instead, what you're going to want to do is sail up close to it and then board the ship. Which means you're going to be firing your little swivel cannons to, like, kill or incapacitate as many of the people on the deck as possible as your crew, you know, draws the ship in closer by, like, you know, grappling with it. Um, but then ultimately, especially for the larger ships, you're going to need to actually board the vessel and engage in some frenetic ship-to-ship fighting um, in order to either take out enough of the crew that they surrender or take out certain strategic targets like the captain the officers the flag or the scouts on on the top of the rigging um and then ultimately they will surrender and then you get not just half but all of the stuff swag that they're carrying um and this will interrupt the ship battle that's going on which is kind of a bummer honestly i feel like that's you know a little bit too cheap um, in so far as like you'll be fired upon by a man of war and you're about to get sunk, but then you manage to like board the other vessel and everyone's like, "All right, we'll stop." And then like for five minutes you board the vessel, you get to repair your ship, and now it's back to fighting the man of war. Um, that kind of sucks. But otherwise, this is awesome. Like there's no stealth opportunity here at all, and in fact, it's really hard to keep track of what's going on in a ship fight to the point that I might criticize it, except that it works. Um, Like a lot of the Assassin's Creed combat to this point has been that kind of turn-based, all right, this guy's going to attack you and you can counter him and attack him in return. You know, there's a certain dimension of strategy to this because certain enemies only respond to certain attacks. Um, That's all present, but the ship battles are so frenetic and have so many people fighting at the same time that frequently you're going to get attacked by people off-screen whose attacks you couldn't see coming. And that would be terrible in a usual Assassin's Creed situation. Like, when that happens in Assassin's Creed 3, it feels unfair. It feels cheap. But in Assassin's Creed 4, because it is such a closed environment, because you don't have any options except to keep on fighting to the bitter end, there, and because, you know, that's what it probably felt like to board an enemy ship, and as a pirate, you know, you expect that level of unpredictability, it works. Um, so you will frequently find yourself, you know, climbing up the rigging to evade attacks and get an opportunity to heal. Or alternatively, you know, you'll get attacked from the middle of nowhere and end up having to do the re- the whole fight over again. And that's annoying, but still kind of fun because it doesn't happen frequently enough to really be obnoxious. Um, so that's kind of the main cycle that you're going to be engaging with you'll be sailing along the high seas looking for high value targets looking for an opportunity to exploit the situation to your advantage getting into a tough fight where you'll be sailing around and trying to use the you know the speed of your ship or the the Like, the fact that you've been able to slow to a crawl and broadside them multiple times to your advantage, and then finally boarding the ship, taking all their swag, using it to upgrade your ship, and then going out looking for bigger targets, bigger fish to hunt. Um, And this works so well. Like, this is the gameplay loop that makes this game sink. Um, there is more to it like if you do in fact get in enough fights the the hunters will come after you and a variation on the notoriety system but it's so easy to avoid that because all you have to do is like spare the crew of the ship and let them sail on you know without repairing your own ship which is easy to do um, that you can keep your wanted level down really really easily Um, but you know that said, like the main loop is, like I said, you're sailing around, you're looking for targets, you're fighting them, boarding them, taking their stuff, using their stuff to upgrade your ship, and going out in search of bigger food. Um, that's a lot of the game. Like a lot of the main missions will have you doing the same thing, like attacking and boarding other ships. As much as there's, you know, more of the typical Assassin's Creed stealth gameplay and like walking around on land, getting into fights, and you know, avoiding you know the the Uh, the sight of others. like As much as that's a large part of the main campaign, the game knows what it's doing. It wants you to get into fights. It wants you to battle other ships. It wants you to board them, take their stuff. That's a lot of what you'll be doing in the game. Which is good, because it's kind of the most fun thing in the game. It works extremely well. When they say that this is enhanced ship combat, they are not kidding around. This is miles above, miles more fun than what Assassin's Creed 3 had to offer, even if it is simplified, streamlined. Um... Now, in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that the game that the game is trying to offer. Um, there's a whole bunch of extra missions and little mini games and stuff that you'll be running into from time to time as the game goes on. Um, so, you know, in addition to all of this ship combat, you will be landing on deserted islands in order to pick up collectibles. Um, you will be occasionally like dropping your longboats and hunting a shark or a whale. Um, it's very clear that this game is taking cues from Herman Melville's Moby. Dick, to the point that like the multiplayer uh one of the multiplayer features is that you will occasionally run into the white whale uh, which is super difficult to take down and like will totally wreck your ship at a moment's notice if you're not playing like your a game harpooning game um it's also super accurate to moby dick like You will lower your longboats, you will hook them with a harpoon, they will try to, the whale or the shark will try to break the harpoon, and you'll try to lob as many more harpoons into it as possible. It is bloody and ugly and messy, um, and then, like, they, you know, carry the whale up on the ship the way that they would in Melville, except that, you know, physics apparently isn't a thing here. Um... All of that is gruesome and grotesque and honestly not a lot of fun, but it is very accurate. It is very historically accurate. Um, like there are definitely some things that are nods to contemporary, you know, literature or popular fiction, like the white whale or like the fact that fighting the great white shark, you know, you'll get a perfect jaw shot of it trying to like open its mouth and eat you um like that's kind of silly but at the same time it is authentic to the time period there is an option and an important part of the history of this time period and as much as it isn't a lot of fun to do this because it is really gross like as much as i was complaining about hunting in the last game this is way worse um but at the same time it fits. It works. It, it fits with the, the gameplay, the time period. You know, it would almost be a bummer not to have this option of going whaling right in the middle of your pirate adventure. Um, likewise, you're also going to spend some time in the diving bell, and this really does suck. Like, uh, the worst part of this game is, in my opinion you know, just diving underwater and just getting relentlessly attacked by sharks because the environment isn't designed well enough for you to successfully hide from them um, while you like collect treasure chests and stuff like that. Um, You've got actual buried treasure. Like you will in fact find treasure maps at certain points and you know, you'll have to track them down to the correct Island and the correct place on the Island and then dig and get whatever cool stuff it is. Um, And importantly, a lot of the best upgrades in the game, like the elite shot, which is the most powerful, you know, shot or the you know the big mortar upgrades or the big capacity upgrades for your various uh, ammunition all of those are unlocked with buried treasure or sunken treasures you've got to go digging for that Um, along the way you're going to run into smugglers outposts and fishing villages and you know mayan ruins with secret mayan treasures that are like buried in various places all of which is super engaging and definitely works like i absolutely enjoy 95 percent of playing this game you know compared to like the 40 percent that i enjoyed in assassin's creed 3 you know as much as once again we have a sort of buffet of little mini games and distractions and sandbox activities it's so well integrated into the game so well integrated into the theme so well just executed as far as the actual play of the game is concerned that i have like no notes here um it's delightful start to finish but and you knew there was a butt coming the real question then becomes so is this really assassin's creed like, don't get me wrong. There have been a lot of good Assassin's Creed games, and there have been a lot of bad Assassin's Creed games up to this point, and they are very much a mixed bag. And I've had a lot of complaints about the Assassin's Creed franchise thus far because of its failure to execute on its, you know, promise, or because it, like, the gameplay has been, you know, dumbed down or made like absurdly difficult, or just made not fun in some cases. Um, like the question here is okay so we jettisoned all of the things that made the assassin's creed franchise obnoxious included all of these new things that the assassin's creed franchise has never seen before is it really fair to call this a good assassin's creed game like honestly this is the point that yahtzee ends up making in his zero punctuation video namely okay i really enjoyed this game it was a lot of fun the ship combat's great you know everything that i just said but do you have to stop being Assassin's Creed in order to make a good Assassin's Creed game? And that's kind of a head-scratcher. Like, if this is, in fact, my favorite Assassin's Creed game, can you even really call it that? Like, isn't this just a pirate game with an Assassin's Creed logo on it? Um, And on some level, I think that's a legitimate criticism. Like, the gameplay is so radically different, so completely changed here, that it's like, okay, maybe the formula was just broken. Maybe the promise that was offered way back in Assassin's Creed 1 just isn't living up to its expectations. Maybe we were wrong. And that's kind of a crappy conclusion to come to, because I've had a lot of fun. Playing Assassin's Creed 1 and 2 especially, playing Assassin's Creed Revelations in some respect, you know, even some of the better parts of AC3 and AC Brotherhood have been entertaining. Is it really fair to throw out the baby with the bathwater here and come up with something completely new? Um, And on the one hand, again, this game includes a lot of the old Assassin's Creed mechanics. If anything, it does them way better than a lot of the Assassin's Creed games up to this point have. But the complaints are still there. Like, yeah, it's totally a great time. It's tracking your enemies through the jungle, hiding in the brush, you know, using those stealth areas to, to get from place to place. Like, that's a lot of fun. But it isn't the same thing as, you know, hanging out on rooftops, tracking your prey, you know, staying out of sight, like, making strategic assassinations through the guards in order to get closer to your target the way that it was in AC 1 and 2. Um... What then is an Assassin's Creed game, is kind of the question that we're left asking here. What is the core mechanics underlying Assassin's Creed? Because on the one hand, it's true that this game's gameplay is radically different from everything that Assassin's Creed has had to offer up until this point. It is a pirate game first, and an Assassin's Creed game second, and even distantly second, at least as far as the gameplay is concerned. But one of the things that fascinates me about this game more than anything is that it delivers so well on what Assassin's Creed promised to be from a story perspective, both from the perspective of the story itself and from the perspective of the theming and the development of these ideas, the philosophy underlying the Assassins and the Templars, that I actually find this on a second playthrough to be if anything, more of an Assassin's Creed game than many of the Assassin's Creed games that seem typically a Assassin's Creed. Like, as much as Assassin's Creed 2 is kind of like the game that has been our reference point for a long time now, because it is the game that delivers on, you know, the creative assassinations, the stealth mechanics at their best, the big sprawling cities with all of the nooks and crannies and the, the well-developed historical, like, time period and, and setting... AC 4 does that. Like, it doesn't do the buildings, it doesn't do the cities, it doesn't do the urban environments that we've come to expect from Assassin's Creed, but everything else is here. And I think that's what's truly important at the end of the day. Um, So let's talk story. And this time, as much as I've been kind of forgetting or neglecting to do the the discussion of the framing device, you know, the whole, hey, you're in the Animus and, you know, Desmond is saving the world thing, like, I want to start there on this one. Because Assassin's Creed 4 is posed with a very unique problem for the franchise this far, namely Desmond is dead. That plot was resolved in Assassin's Creed 3. Like, the other characters are still alive, presumably, but the end of the world has been averted, and Desmond is dead, and all of the plot, you know, threads that were sort of opened up in Assassin's Creed One have now been thoroughly resolved. Um, like even down to that whole nonsense, Da Vinci Code conspiracy theory garbage. Like it's still out there. The Assassins and Templars remain at war with one another, but there's no longer some big apocalyptic endpoint that we're trying to get to. We're starting from scratch here. The setting remains the same, but the actual problems are now completely different. The big apocalyptic endgame is resolved. So what do you do? And I find Assassin's Creed 4's solution to be kind of fascinating, even if it isn't really all that interesting or engaging. Namely, we're going to revert to the whole Animus in Abstergo situation. No longer are we Desmond on the run from the Templars by, you know, hiding out with his Scooby squad in various exotic locations, which may or may not be first, you know, precursor race, like, uh, temples or factories or, you know, whatever. Um, Now we are literally just in an Abstergo office environment, and importantly, we are preparing to create what is essentially Assassin's Creed 4? Like, let me back up here. Um, we are in Assassin's Creed 4. You actually start with Edward and the Kenways and the historical situation. Um, we don't apologize for this. And honestly, they shouldn't apologize for this. Totally cool with me that they only introduced the framing device after the game has already started. Like, at this point, Assassin's Creed is clearly in, you know, a well-developed franchise. Anyone who's playing AC4 almost certainly knows that there are other entries in the franchise. We don't need to futz around with like establishing things the way that we did in Assassin's Creed 1 or, or elsewhere. We don't need to explain Animus technology. We don't need to explain, you know, ancestral memories and all that like maybe in the lore we'll do that but it doesn't need to be a huge priority let's start with the pirates that's the fun stuff that's what everyone has come to see and then we'll fill in the gaps later so we start with kenway um and only later do we get to you know what is the deal here um and importantly the deal is you are apparently a new hire for abstergo but now abstergo isn't doing some kind of twisted genetic memory research where it's like imprisoning people and harvesting their memories and you know using it to find precursor artifacts no we're doing something far more sneaky here we are creating entertainment experiences using these ancestral memories, which are now kind of supposed to be in the public domain, though it's clear that we are very much using still uh, Desmond's genetic code against his will, presumably, since Desmond is dead, and, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But importantly, this is essentially a multicultural, European-based corporation doing entertainment products using history and these historical memories as their foundation. And it is not subtle that we are talking about Ubisoft here. Like, there are multiple sort of nods and references to the Ubisoft work environment, to the sort of culture surrounding it. Like, it seems to be working on a metatextual level here to suggest that that we, when we are taking the place of, you know, I believe he's been christened noob by the community, the the character who goes unnamed throughout the story, who is, in fact, this new hire and is, in fact, you know, hanging around with all these Abstergo employees, you know, going through the Animus and and dredging up these memories and exploring, you know, the identity of Edward Kenway and his past and all that stuff. Um, It is important to note that this very much is in order to prepare for a big title entertainment release about pirates, about Edward Kenway, about, you know, all of these important characters in the golden age of piracy. And it is important that it is an interactive experience, that the audience will not just be watching this like a movie, but will be essentially in the role of this pirate experiencing things as he does. You know, playing a video game, so as much as the whole like piracy thing is definitely the main focus here, this is kind of an opportunity for Ubisoft to actually directly comment on the problems that I've been identifying in this franchise thus far. So there are in fact like text, not subtext, lore dumps where you know, you'll have the, the typical, like, okay, so here is this character, and and this is when they were born, and this is when they lived, and these are their major accomplishments, and so on and so forth, the same stuff that we've been seeing in all the Assassin's Creed games to date, but importantly, we don't have Sean anymore, which, good, screw that guy, I hate his, you know, sassy, like, supposedly satirical, bitter commentary on on half of what he insists on talking about, Um Instead, we're just getting actual, like, history lore dumps. But importantly, the context for it is you will also see various, like, employees slash, like, executives talking about these characters. And importantly, talking about how entertaining they will be and whether or not they should include them in the full release. Again, we are dumpster diving for information here in order to put together a streamlined, slick-looking video game essentially about the stuff that we're playing so we're kind of seeing you know as a sort of cultivated artistic experience as part of the meta text of this game we are seeing the comments the discussion that is happening behind the scenes at ubisoft when they are asking questions like should we be including this part is it too graphic is it too ugly does it put the main character in too negative a light um that's all there and i find this to be inspired like it wasn't something i remembered for my first time through like i remember that yeah you have to walk through an office and most of the office walk through stuff sucks but the overall context of okay so here you are in a new location here is some famous historical landmark um, in the actual city of havana and then you'll have the discussion you'll see like actually this wasn't a thing until the 1750s which is outside of the context of this game and you'll literally see some developer comment saying put it in any way it's too important to miss it's too cool to miss which is such a good choice Because on the one hand, it does show you, yeah, this is a really important part of the landscape, the culture, the city that you're exploring. But importantly, it's not something that actually belongs in the game. It isn't historically accurate, but it's cool. And we know that it's cool. And we want you to experience it for yourself as well. Like, that's a really cool choice. That allows you to get both the very strict historical accuracy that many of these developers are insisting on, and there are characters, you know, whose initials you come to recognize who do in fact insist on the historical accuracy over and above all other considerations, whereas you'll see, you know, the actual executive saying, wait, that's more fun, put that in instead, and that's the overriding decision here. So now we can see the conflict that, like, we see the discussion, the debate, in some sense. The developers are leaving us hints about the actual development process, showing us how these games are made, how the sausage is made, how the difficult decisions about historical accuracy are dealt with, how you ultimately have the conflicting interests of the artistic people who want, you know, the best story that they can and to include all the cool stuff that they can versus the historical, you know, like the historical accuracy people who are like, actually, we can't include that because this is set in this time, but the, you know, the thing that you want in there is from this other time Um, versus the corporate interest. We want it to make money. We want to include all the special, shiny, cool things to put on the back of the box. That's awesome, especially because... The game does in fact have more than just, you know, like the story beats to include here. There is a struggle between the Assassins and the Templars in Abstergo itself. Like the whole sort of plot that your character who you are embodying goes through is that he is secretly working for the assassins or doesn't know that he's working for the assassins is just being bossed around by whoever the IT supervisor is forced to get this illicit material and then deliver it to surprise surprise Rebecca and Sean who have infiltrated the corporate environment and are occasionally taking these data dumps for their own inscrutable purposes. In short, what you're seeing is heavy duty execs at Abstergo, i.e., Templars, calling the shots from on high, getting the information that they need in order to track down these artifacts. In short, nothing has changed, as well as assassins trying to undermine these efforts and get things for their own purposes, as well as kind of innocent bystanders, people who are just stuck in the middle of this. You know, maybe they are high ranking executives who don't work for the Templars but are just taking their commands because they know that they're higher up the chain of command because they are the investors at the end of the day. Or alternatively you have CEOs who are like sympathetic to the Templar cause and are very much engaged in getting the same material and are, you know, walking around calling the shots and bossing other people around for reasons that they can't understand. Or you've got just employees like the character who you are playing. Not affiliated with the Assassins, not affiliated with the Templars, but caught in the middle and being used as a pawn in their greater schemes. That's really cool. Like, it makes for an actual compelling sort of, you know, story to this character and to their environment, as well as giving us some insight into how these decisions are made, how these corporate interests are reconciled with the historical needs and the, you know, artistic uh, needs it's a really interesting approach to this. It's a really interesting solution, and absolutely it makes me think that they should have gotten rid of Desmond years ago. Like, the story of Desmond is so lackluster, so paint-by-numbers, so dull by comparison to the way that this story works, that it's really a shame that they didn't get rid of him earlier. And that's not to say that the story is good. It doesn't work. But it does thematically bring up a lot of interesting questions and a lot of interesting ideas that the games have thus far been pretty reluctant to talk about. Um, Like, one of the big moments in the sort of framing device part of the game is you've successfully gotten through almost the entire Edward Kenway story. Start to finish, you know, early aspirations to piracy all the way through, like, tragic denouement and the death of all of his friends. And then you get, in this total total dissonance um your like immediate supervisor says hey look at this trailer that we've mocked up and it totally misses the point like edward isn't tragic here no it's just violence and pirates and everything is awesome and is isn't it cool that all these guys were so awful and violent and don't you want to play as them and you just realize that that's the same kind of tension that you're dealing with all the time at these corporations you were sort of shown firsthand that how these deep meaningful historical realities how these tragedies or comedies of errors or just ridiculous turns of fate or you know horrors of colonialism all get sandpapered over into this very palatable very marketable story and franchise But at the end of the day, the game is sort of urging you to look deeper, to question the games that have come before, and also kind of apologizing for them. Yeah, we get that we didn't do, you know, Colonial America correctly. Look at all the problems we had to face in order to be able to even have that conversation, in order to be able to to get even the bit that we did get. That's really cool. And it's executed fairly well here. It gives this game greater depth which is always a good thing. Um, Being able to have those conversations, being able to reevaluate those issues, that's a really neat thing. Um, Now, let's talk about Edward Kenway's story, though, because he is the main focus here. Like, as much as the framing device is better developed here, and we do have this new, interesting, thematic sort of play between the, the corporate needs versus the historical integrity and the artistic integrity, you know, I'm kind of reminded of that, like, whole discursive scene at the beginning of Goethe's Faust where he's like entertaining the the ideas of the clown and the the director and the the person who owns the theater like their artistic needs versus the comic needs like it's just really cool and I really like it and I'm I probably should probably stop talking about it as much as all of that is cool let's talk about Edward because the sort of default story that has been told since Assassin's Creed 2 has been the story of a man um i.e one of the assassins how they come to be an assassin and the various twists and turns that their life takes we saw this in assassin's creed 2 with Ezio. we saw this in assassin's creed 3 with connor here we see it again with edward and like those two we have what is at the end of the day a pretty broad strokes very recognizable kind of protagonist you know storyline developing here i.e edward is recently married down on his luck looking for adventure leaves his wife and in the effort to become a pirate and you know make his fortune come back and you know like support his family but he is out too long gets enamored in the lifestyle loses sight of his his goals and ultimately gets too wrapped up in the pirate lifestyle um but even more than that like the actual beats along the way are every bit as fascinating because on the one hand, Edward becomes friends with all of the pirates, no surprise there, this is an Assassin's Creed game. By all means, include all the cool, you know, awesome historical figures that you can. So naturally he falls in with Ben Hornigold and you know Blackbeard and Mary Reed slash young James Kidd and like Black Bart and all of the famous pirates of the age. But his relationship to them is also kind of crucial to the development of the story and the development of the game. So where Ezio, we kind of get his whole man on a mission to, you know, avenge his family and the the Templars who killed them and destroyed his life, here we have something that is considerably more morally tricky. Namely, Edward isn't a hero. And that too is a really cool place to go here. Um, Like, As much as Assassin's Creed 2 and Assassin's Creed 3 have some moral gray area and do you know incorporate those philosophical questions that we saw introduced in Assassin's Creed 1 you know who am I working for am I doing the right thing what is the whole freedom versus order conflict they've largely avoided any of the moral gray area questions like we saw a little bit of that in Assassin's Creed Revelations with you know like Suleiman giving Ezio orders and Suleiman, like, having his empire separate from the assassin's goals and, you know, maybe being a little bit too free and easy with his occasional assassination requests. Um, In Assassin's Creed 3, though, Connor is kind of just. A Mary Sue, in some ways. Like, he's perfect and doesn't have any flaws whatsoever, except for the fact that other people are le- leaning him around by the nose, and he is a little gullible and susceptible to that. He's kind of the perfect character for exploring the moral nuances of the revolution, namely, oh, look, here is heroic George Washington ordering the systematic execution of the natives because they are teaming up with the British. That sucks. But at the same time, Connor himself is never anything less than totally heroic. Edward, on the other hand, is kind of framed as a villain from the start. And that works. Like, he's got these deep, dark-set eyes, which are always sort of framed in black throughout the entire game. He looks like a mean, nasty son of a bitch. And... I really enjoy that. I've been saying for a while that the game has been kind of hobbled by its need to vindicate itself, to make you feel good about playing these characters. Because here in Assassin's Creed 4, you're playing as a pirate. You don't want to feel good. You want to be a jerk. You want to go around taking ships and, you know, like, preying on the weak. That's what pirates do. That's how they manage to survive. And on the one hand, Ubisoft and, you know, the Assassin's Creed game here is well aware That it is this moral gray area that they are operating in and it does have this sort of noble goal that they are aspiring to namely this pirate republic dreamed up by hornigold protected by ed thatch and financed by kenway's various pirate operations um but on the other hand it's very clear from the outset that kenway is kind of indifferent to all of these high-minded goals of both the assassins and the templars for like 80 percent of this game he's in it for himself you know that from the beginning, the better, the better characters in the game question him about it multiple times, and he just goes along with it, and you go along with him. Why? Because it's fun! It's fun to blow up these ships and take all their stuff, and it's fun to just want your ship to be better and better and better and better, and it's fun to be rich, and it's fun to have all this cool stuff. Like, you don't need to justify it morally here, and that offers you the opportunity to actually explore the morality of the situation, rather than just, like, going along with it. But what's more, it also sets up for the story to be more than just a feel-good power fantasy. Kenway's life is ruined by his own decisions, by his own actions. Like, yeah, he and Ben Hornigold and Thatch start out in Nassau, like drinking it up and you know stealing a man of war in order to protect the, the their port and to protect themselves from the British invasions. Yeah, great, but at the end of the day, that republic falls apart, and you are watching it fall apart. You get to see all of these characters with their high minded ideals ultimately betray those ideals and die, either tragically or heroically or both. Again, the gray area here is so important for understanding these characters and understanding their will. Like, you have conversations with Blackbeard where it seems like he's gone off the rails. Where, you know, he puts all the the slow smoking fuses in his hat and now he just looks like the devil and he claims to be the devil because he knows that the theatricality is the only way to get people to follow him and the only way to get people to fear him the way that he wants. And as much as that is awful, like anyone with half a brain would look at that and say, wow, that guy's a a head case. At the same time, we are inclined to admire it. That's why we have this sort of romance of piracy at the same time as we are well aware that these were all horrible murderers and rapists and terrible people doing terrible things this game gets that and this game explores it without apologizing for it without at any time saying no it was totally fine they were all good people blackbeard's totally a stand-up guy like he has stand-up moments The big sort of mission that you go on with Blackbeard is when he takes an entire town hostage until they give him enough medicine to cure his crew and presumably everybody at Nassau as well. Which, on the one hand, is terrible. You can't, like, hold people hostage. You can't threaten all these people at gunpoint. You can't murder and kill and torture in order to get your way. But at the same time, you recognize his compassion the fact that he is doing it for the sake of his crew, and he does have, in fact, a noble purpose at hand, that he is doing this for a higher-minded ideal. But what this game is willing to talk about is the distance between those high-minded ideals and the practical realities of getting those ideals recognized. Yes, everybody agrees having some sort of utopian free republic of pirates and sailors in Nassau would be a cool thing. Like, Edward Kenway pretends it democracy multiple times over the course of the game. Like, he'll be like, hey, we're going to go on this mission. Let's put it to a vote. Who wants to, you know, go take out this ship and and bring it back to Nassau? And everyone's like, and he's like, and who is cowardly and doesn't want to, you know, engage in this because they're scared for their lives? That's not democracy. Like, he claims to be democracy, but he's not. He's definitely tipping the scales. And on multiple occasions, his quartermaster, Adewale, who you escape from jail with, and who is kind of the moral center of the whole game, will ask him, like, do you really think the crew are going to follow you on this one? And Rakenway's like, I'm the captain, I do what I want. And that's what makes this game so rich. On the one hand, there is a much bigger thematic goal here, a much bigger story goal here. We want this Republic, this pirate culture, to survive, to become something independent of all of the nations that have tried to, been p- to play around with them. Again, these are all people who were used to be manipulated by these nations into fighting one another. You know, they are privateers on the, Her Majesty's bankroll in order to take down Spanish ships whenever they could, who have now been cut off from that source of income without being given the opportunity to change their lifestyles. These are unmoored, men abandoned by their nations, who those nations were more than happy to be complicit in murder and thievery and rape, as long as it was to Her Majesty's advantage. But now what? Now what do you do? These are men who are forced to put a life together, who are forced to reconcile their violence and their lack of morality with a code. People who are forced to turn piracy into not just a way of getting through their days but an actual life they have to start thinking about the future and this dovetails perfectly with that assassins templars philosophical divide that has been in the franchise since the beginning namely how does this match the order versus chaos discussion the order versus freedom discussion If the assassins have always been about freedom and freedom first, then wouldn't the pirates naturally fit in with the assassins' code? But on the contrary, here are the Templars with their order-and-order-first environment, and the pirates actually find themselves caught between these two. Um, You have not just Edward Kenway and his lust for riches, but you have Ben Hornigold and his will to make his Nassau Republic into an actual functioning government that can protect its people, that can support their lives. Um, You have Ed Thatch and his desire for theatricality and his pragmatic recognition that only violence is going to get them what they want, employed to protect the people that he cares about and the the world that he has built for himself. But against these sort of high-minded ideals, you also have the likes of Jack Rackham, who is just here for the booze, thank you very much, and who is drunk off his butt every time that you see him, or Charles Vane, who is just looking out for number one and doesn't care about these high-minded ideals, except insofar as it serves him and his purposes. All of these different views on what piracy is and could be are fighting against each other in this game. And as much as it is, at the end of the day, a fun adventure about Edward Kenway, you know, destroying himself and pirates, it is at the end of the day a deep philosophical investigation of why this sort of utopia, this whole pirate republic, kind of doesn't work. How it falls apart at the end of the day. But before we get into the thematic resonance here, there are two more things that we need to talk about as far as the story is concerned. First, we need to talk about the conclusion of Kenway's arc. Namely, the fact that as all of these various pirates with their various goals gradually come to bad ends, either because you know they are ultimately tracked down by the British and killed, like Ed Thatch is, Blackbeard, or because they convert to the Templars in order to guarantee the safety of Nassau over its freedom, like Hornigold does, or just because they end up betraying Kenway and thus end up an obstacle to his own goals of riches and rewards, like Rackham, who sells them out, maroons them, and sails away with their ship at any rate all of these pirates eventually either end up dead or insane thatch is killed by the british brackham is captured by the british and left to die in a gibbet vane goes mad while he is uh, marooned with kenway and ultimately ends up in a british prison mary reed i.e. James Kidd, i.e. your majorist connection to the assassins, is ultimately captured by the British and narrowly avoids being executed by claiming that she's pregnant, only to die from complications due to that same pregnancy. At the end of the day, Kenway realizes that in his lust for riches, he has in fact lost everyone around him. He was not there supporting their ideals and therefore couldn't come to a conclusion. At the end of the day, the Pirate Republic fails because everybody's got a different agenda. Everybody's at odds with each other. Everybody's priorities are different. So when Hornigold says, Thatch, you cannot lay siege to that city. It will bring down the ire of the British on Nassau. Thatch is like, I don't care about Nassau and your stupid republic. I'm going to do what's best for me and my crew. And I will do what I need to do in order to get there, violence included. When in fact... You know, Charles Vane is out there trying to, you know, capture a man of war in order to guarantee his own safety, security, and wealth, and then Rackham, who is just in it for the booze, betrays him and maroons him. That leads them to this divide, causes them to be unable to reconcile at any other point. Vane even turns on Kenway, and you ultimately have to effectively assassinate him. And Hornigold, who sells himself out to the Templars, becomes a target. For you to assassinate later on in the game. Each of these characters, you ultimately lose in one way or another, either because you insufficiently supported them, because you were too busy, too preoccupied with your own goals, or alternatively, you end up killing them yourself because they are getting in the way. Kenway ends up alone. And there's some really bitter development of this. There is a truly memorable sequence where even the loading screen gets changed from, you know, you being able to walk around as whoever your assassin of the day is to staggering drunk until you pass out on the loading screen and you're treated to a viciously surreal look at Kenway like reckoning with his mistakes realizing how awful he's been to his friends and very much coming to terms with the fact that he is now alone and abandoned by everyone he used to care about that everyone is dead that his mistakes have brought him to this point and now he ultimately has to start thinking about something bigger than himself or die just as his friends have lose the way that everyone he knows has But that brings us to the last component of the story, namely the big goal. The MacGuffin that Kenway is searching for that is going to turn his fate around, the big ultimate score that will guarantee his success, is he stumbles across the Templars in his journeys, and they are talking about this observatory. Apparently, the Precursors, through some twist of fate, left this big observatory which can apparently show you what a person is seeing as long as you have any vial of their blood so they need to go to this place with all the blood of the people that they want to control or manipulate and then they will be able to control the caribbean control these nations control these kings and conquerors and emperors they will have total control of the world because they will be able to access this but in order to get to it they need the sage who is apparently this mysterious person whose genetic code recurs throughout time, and you know when it in fact occurs, like this person can gain access to the observatory due to some long aforementioned romance, we're not going to get into it. Suffice it to say that what Kenway is doing is searching for the sage so he can gain access to the observatory so he can use it as leverage for his own personal wealth and gain. The trouble is, the sage doesn't play nice and he is very much caught between the Templars and the Assassins, who are both fighting over this sage as well. So initially he finds the sage as the Templars are trying to track him down, and he in fact gets the sage for the Templars, before he ultimately turns on the Templars, ruins their plans, lets the sage go, kind of accommodates himself to the Assassins, especially Mary Reed, who then serves as his sort of like contact with the Assassins, and is trying to guide him to following the Assassins' Creed, Only to ultimately get into the Assassin's Creed too late, after he's tried to secure the sage for himself, and after the sage turns on him, declares himself a pirate, and wanders around with his crystal skull magical doodad who allows him to see all of these other people, and declaring himself the greatest pirate in the world. So we have multiple interests, all of these conflicting pirate agendas, the Templars versus the Assassins, the British versus the Spanish, Kenway and his own selfish goals along with the rest of the Pirate Republic and their each individual selfish goals, and then finally all of that being thrown up by the sage saying, I do what I want, screw the Templars, screw the Assassins, screw the Pirates, screw the Spanish, screw the British, screw everyone, I am myself, I do what I want which eventually Kenway has to assassinate him, take his skull and move on, secured in the the knowledge that he can restore it to the original location for the good of the assassins and for the good of the world. That's the cause he ultimately commits to. So that's our story, and it is a complicated one. It is a nuanced one. It is a fascinating one, and importantly for us, it is a thematically rich one. Because as much as this is still, at the end of the day, all of these pirates and all of these famous historical figures and assassins versus Templars and so on and so forth, it's important to notice that each of these perspectives represents a different ideology, represents a different philosophical position in the development of this utopian world that the pirates are all hoping to find. For the Templars, as for the British, this is about control and the only way that you can guarantee peace, prosperity, or anything is for a couple of people at the top of the pyramid to be controlling everyone on the bottom of the pyramid. And as we've seen before, the assassins are dead set against this. Let there be freedom for all. But importantly, freedom for the assassins does not mean just pure hedonism and liberality. Kenway has to come to reckon with this, You know, just as in Assassin's Creed 2 and 3, we get those moments where that whole creed that we talked about in the first game, nothing is true, everything is permitted, gets qualified, where we recognize that it has to be more than just, you know, everybody doing whatever they want, whenever they want to, that freedom has to be tempered with agreement, with a sort of tacit acceptance of this system, that you have to serve others in order to express your freedom correctly. Kenway reckons with this by acknowledging, and I quote, Maybe that creed that nothing is true and everything is permitted is the beginning of wisdom and not the full culmination of it. Um, This is what he comes to conclude because he's seen what freedom looks like when it is misused. He saw Ed Thatch insist upon his freedom from Hornigold's commands and ultimately conclude that he can do whatever he wants and end up dead for it. Unprotected because nobody else was willing to agree with him. And by contrast, we've seen Hornigold's take on this. You know, in order to make the world better, I will team up with the Templars because I believe more in order than the freedom that this pirate republic represents and convert to Templarism. Like, recognizing that his own view of a perfect utopian republic is unsustainable without greater powers behind him, he submits himself to those greater powers. He recognizes that the republic cannot survive without them. He initially signs the treaty with Rogers to, you know, like get receive a pardon from the British if he stops attacking them, but ultimately succumbs to the Templar way of life and the Templar way of seeing things. By contrast, we have Charles Vane and Jack Rackham both just in it for themselves, both destroyed by these forces that are so much greater than them, both captured by the British, or ultimately destroying themselves by coming to blows with each other. You know, Rackham at one point lights up a pipe while he's sitting on a barrel of gunpowder, and Vane is like, are you a complete idiot? What are you doing? You cannot just succumb all of your intelligence and rationality to your immediate desire, your desire to just be totally stoned in the moment. Vane has the intelligence to recognize his self-preservation before his self-pleasure, but at the end of the day even that has to succumb to the other greater powers at stake in this world because he alone can't do anything can't even fight kenway um but then we come to bart himself bart who is at the end of the day the nihilist of the group you know our sage who has been the pawn of the assassins on the one hand and the pawn of the templars on the other but he ultimately decides no i will declare myself a pirate i will decide my own way of life he commits to the axiom i want only a short life and a merry one Who cares if I die quickly? At least I'll die the way I want to. I'll die enjoying it. He has no aspirations. No dream of some greater pirate republic. No dream of some, you know, worldwide, like, influence. No no greater ideal to follow. No cause to fight for. He will be just himself doing what he wants to do. Not like Rackham, who is just like drowning himself in his booze but consciously intelligently choosing to screw everybody else live for himself and know that this is a doomed venture which ultimately he is killed by kenway after he has committed to the creed bart at the end of the day is what kenway was on track to become But Kenway doesn't want to die so easily. Kenway does have people that he cares about. He still, at the end of the day, has some misguided hope of rejoining his life to his wives way back in England. But at the end of the day, he finds out she's already dead. And he took too long to figure all this out. But that doesn't mean that his family is duped. He bore a daughter. And he still has a chance to make her life a good one if he just gives up this mad dream of being a pirate, this mad lust for adventure, this mad lust for some kind of wild riches, settles down, accepts his pardon, and lives like a decent human being in decent human society. There's something truly profound about what this game has to tell us. It very much is emphasizing that this disunity among these pirates, the freedom that the Assassin's Creed promises can't exist in a vacuum that if you just search out your freedom you will be doomed to at best a short life and a merry one as bart does and at worst a drunken stupor of an existence like rackham or going mad out of your own narcissism like Vane, or a tragic end like blackbeard fighting for his allies you have to take a side in short this game is telling us You cannot just say that you are in it for yourself and nobody else, damn the rest of the world. You will choose a creed. You will choose to serve the powers that exist, tyrannical and oppressive and unjust as they are, or you will choose to serve a cause greater than yourself, a cause of freedom where you do subordinate your will to those around you, where you will in fact end up serving the others around you willingly because their cause is just and not because you want power and to arrogate it for yourself. That's what the Assassin's Creed boils down to here in this game. That's what it means for this pirate republic. That's what it means in the golden age of piracy. And that doesn't make Teach any less romantic, but nor does it excuse the brutality of, of his lifestyle and the murders that he's committed. It doesn't excuse Rackham for all of his drunken foolishness and betrayals and destruction, but as Kenway puts it pretty poignantly, I enjoyed your company and I will miss you for that, even after he's dead, even after he's been betrayed. What this game recognizes is that with this moral gray area, with this acceptance of the fact that there is moral gray area, with the acceptance of the fact that these villains can be heroes at one moment and villains another, that selfish people will end badly even if they do have some greater purpose in mind, this game is showing us the richness of this philosophical perspective. At long last, it delivers on the promise offered in the first game. This question of order versus freedom finally we have some kind of real answer here that yeah you can have freedom but freedom without organization without subordination and service without selflessness is ultimately worthless self-destructive and ultimately going to end in misery tragedy and chaos without an organization without a subordinated freedom there is no chance of fighting against the organization of the Templars, of the indoctrination of this hierarchical frame of reference. Without some sort of cooperation, what Mary Read, the other major conscience of this game, prescribes, like without you know, recognizing that there is a greater cause to fight for, you will not be able to enjoy that freedom. You will not be able to enjoy the life that you want to lead. You have to give up something. Because if you don't, you just die alone. Miserable and short. And that's a heck of a thing to do. Like, it's rare for video games to give us this sort of philosophical or deep thematic insight at all. Never mind the fact that it's a decent game with good gameplay, a pretty compelling story throughout, characters that are interesting and who have these different perspectives, who are, you know, encouraged to sort of think about and bounce off of one another... There's a lot to say about how well this game is constructed, especially in light of how many failures Ubisoft has delivered up until this point, especially in that story and theme department. Considering how vapid so much of the Assassin's Creed 2 line tended to be, how confused Assassin's Creed 3 was with its messaging, this game is surprisingly clear. Like, It is confused in the sense that there are a lot of different perspectives that are being entertained, but there's an organization to it. We're not looking at, you know, colonialism is good or is colonialism bad? It depends on which minigame we're playing. We're looking at something more in line with a Dostoevsky novel. Multi-voiced, multi-perspective, and seeing how these different perspectives conflict and confront one another. It's good art, in short. It's a good game that is doing good literature in its own right, as well as good historical analysis and good historiography. That's what this game is doing. And it is impressive, especially after all of the sort of misfires and all of the corporate problems that this game is literally willing to talk about with us. As much as it is, at the end of the day, apologizing for its past mistakes, it does overcome these things. It distinguishes itself. And in that sense, it is a really good Assassin's Creed game. It may not deliver on the gameplay that we were hoping for. It may not successfully be an Assassin's Creed game in the sense that we're jumping off of buildings and stabbing people through the throat and plotting our courses and all that fun stuff. Like, But it does absolutely deliver on the promise of its philosophy and its storytelling devices. The fact that they are moving to pirates actually frees up A lot of the resources that used to be devoted towards making the protagonist seem awesome or making it the moral gray area vanish, making the Templars out to be cartoon villains and the assassins out to be cartoon heroes, now we can dwell in that gray area. Now we can look at the space between these two shadowy organizations. Talk about the various views of what that perfect world would look like and how incompatible they are. How a perfect world might still be wrought out of all of this. How, at the end of the day, all of these different you know, perspectives, all of these different nuances to the essential Templar power structure or Assassin's Creed revolution will ultimately collapse into one of the two perspectives because alone they mean so little. We look at what freedom actually means here and how, at the end of the day, freedom in a vacuum... Can't survive, that it has to be tempered, that even that original Assassin's Creed formula has to be qualified, and that it isn't some axiom for all time. You know, same thing that Dostoevsky told us back in The Brothers Karamazov. If nothing is true and everything is permitted, yeah, that's a pretty lousy philosophy to live by. Just look at Vane, just look at Rackham, just look at Teach, just look at Kenway before his conversion. Just look at Bart. But if instead we see that as the beginning of wisdom, as the start to postmodernism, as a foundational precept that needs to be reevaluated and at the end of the day thrown out, that's something meaningful. That's something true. And I think it's really impressive that this game is willing to go back on that philosophical underpinning to say we screwed up and that a barren atheism, a barren nihilism will at the end of the day be self-destructive, that shows maturity. Whoever these developers are, And again, I recognize there's a conflict here at Ubisoft. There's competing interests. There are developers who probably are trying to embody and follow this thematic through line through the franchise, and there are other developers who are not interested or just interested in getting the new cool game mechanics for the back of the box so corporate will be happy and they'll make all of the money. But whoever it is who is in fact exploring these ideas, who are interested in maintaining this philosophical interrogation as the backbone of this franchise's thematic heart, sorry, that's like way too many mixed metaphors, as the backbone of this franchise's philosophy, this is a step forward. And while there have been other steps forward in this franchise, this is the greatest one so far, the most cogent one, the most thoughtful and the most thought-provoking. The reason why I love this game is not just because it's a lot of fun to play, but it is. It's a lot of fun to play, and it is a rich, deep, insightful look at this theme that the Assassin's Creed franchise has been kicking around for a long time. It may not deliver on the gameplay that the first game promised, but it definitely delivers on the message, and that is a worthy, fascinating thing to look at. This game remains one of the greats. Now, I need to confess, this is also where we're going to be changing our approach in my lecture series. Like, this was the last great Assassin's Creed game for me, as much as I did play Unity, and I do have a lot of thoughts on that, and I do want to replay it, and I do want to talk about how good I think it actually is. But that was also the last Assassin's Creed game game I've played, period um it's also the last like ac4 is the last game that i played on the ps3 all the rest i own for pc which means you can expect some big format changes in the future and i want to talk about them before we call it for today Um, first and foremost for our next episode i want to get into the weeds um, I have not played a lot of the sort of spin-off games from 3 and 4. Um, I didn't play Assassin's Creed Rogue, and I didn't play the standalone sequel slash expansion Freedom Cry. I want to do both of those things. Um, Freedom Cry sounds fascinating. There's a lot of really interesting things that the game is doing, talking about slavery in that game from what I understand. So I definitely want to play it, and I have it on PC, so I'm going to record it, and we are going to have YouTube videos on this one. Um, and going forward, that's what I plan to do. I'm going to do a double header next time on Rogue and Freedom Cry as our sort of Kenway special, like round out the Kenway saga the same way we rounded out the Ezio saga before. Um, then I intend to do our Assassin's Creed 5 discussion, um, which is in fact the a game that I've played, but the last game that I've played. Um, I want to talk about Unity. I want to talk about everything that went wrong with its release, as well as everything that went right with its development, and how well it's aged in the years since. And then we're off to the races. Um, I do in fact have all three Assassin's Creed Chronicles games, so I might very well do a lecture on those. Um, I do in fact have Syndicate, and Origins, and Odyssey, and I don't think I have Valhalla yet, but it's very much going to be on sale on all of the platforms this this december so there's a decent chance i'm going to be picking it up for 20 bucks at some point or less in the future who knows at any rate i got a lot more that i want to talk about but from here on out we're going to be doing videos which i will in fact be uploading to anchor slash spotify but will also in all likelihood appear on the video game academy uh youtube channel so watch out for them there um i (laughs) also need to emphasize that this is new uncharted territory for me with the exception of unity these are all new games not old ones so i will be speaking very much from the experience as i have it rather than reviewing it and talking about the first time i played these games it'll be the first time i played these games again with the exception of unity um so i'm excited I am excited to branch out beyond the games that I know, leaving this, you know, the big one, Assassin's Creed 4, my favorite in the franchise up until this point, as, you know, a really great send-off of the franchise and, you know, very much a, a sort of, like, opportunity, a recognition that there is, in fact, hope for this franchise that was otherwise plagued by problems and false starts and, you know, corporate interference. I am eager to see what the rest of this game series has to offer. Uh, at the same time, I don't expect anything to be as good as Assassin's Creed 4, like great if it is, but definitely not counting on it, especially because we're going to see the, uh, the the live service model creep into the franchise in the, the next couple of games, so hooray for that. Uh, but whatever we encounter in the games to come, whatever we encounter in the new year in my reviews of Assassin's Creed, I look forward to talking about them, and I'm definitely looking forward to talking about them with you.